0: I was leading healthcare divisions of healthcare organizations, markets that had 12, 13,000 employees. I mean, it's an ecosystem in itself and has a tremendous amount of complexity that goes along with it. you got to segment that. So the message, if you're trying to bring forward a solution, a product, a tool, some assistance... Um, to the health system, you've got to segment what the message and what you'd communicate to the C-suite, which might be different than what you'd be communicating to the finance leadership, which is different than what you'd communicate potentially to the technology, the IT department. And then obviously very different than what you'd be communicating to the operator.
1: Have you ever wished you had a healthcare provider on speed dial?
0: Someone you could call to validate your product market fit someone to listen and help you see your solution differently.
1: Welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix, a podcast to help you see your market clearly. We dive deep into the challenges faced by healthcare organization leaders that technology has the chance to help them solve. It's all about gaining the kind of understanding you need to effectively connect with your market. Join us as we explore the Healthcare Market Matrix. All right. Greetings everybody and welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix. Today we are privileged to be joined by none other than Dave Brooks and uh Dave is currently the the Chief Strategy Officer for People.Health, but let me just give you a little quick tour of uh his CV because it's the, he he's made some pretty impressive stops along the road here. He uh Back in 1996, he took the helm as CEO of Christus Medical Group and Vice President of Physician Services there. He was Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer uh, at DePage Health, uh, Central DePage Health. He was CEO of Providence Regional Medical Center. Uh, he, hot, he was the President of Ascension St. John Hospital and Senior Vice President of, East, of the East Region there. President of St. Joseph Mercy Health in Ann Arbor and Livingston, and then was the director of Wayne County here, Detroit, uh, health, uh, health and Veterans Services. And very conspicuously to me, Dave, that uh, you, you concluded your term at, the, at Wayne County Health in 2020. And, well that that may have been uh, extremely fortuitous or uh, <laughs> I mean what I know is that you had front fr- a front row seat and uh, and certainly through your work at people.health have had a front row seat at the effects of the pandemic in our healthcare system. Right. And uh I'd love to I'd love to kind of start there. Um well but but before we uh kind of jump into some of that tell tell me tell us a little bit about about that background, uh, some of your journey as you've been in the leadership of a number of provider organizations in your tenure, uh, would love to hear a little bit about that journey and, and, uh, what that was like and some of the insights that you've gained along the way.
0: Happy to do it. Thanks John for the opportunity here to chat with you about all this. Um, so I grew up here in, uh, in Motown, Detroit, uh, area, uh, and, uh, I have a wonderful family. My wife Laura, two great kids uh, who are now in their twenties, um, and uh, that part of my life is great and stable and and uh, wonderful. And I obviously made it back to the MoTown area. That's where I'm living now. Uh, after a little bit of uh, some travels there, I kind of, from a professional viewpoint, I've spent you know pretty much my whole career, my whole adult life, literally, as uh, in healthcare uh, leadership of some sort or another. Uh, I've actually spent, it's amazing to me as I think back on it, 35 years in some form or another of a C-suite position in large health systems. So, you know, large provider organizations that were very focused on organizing the care and organizing the services to serve everyone in their communities. And I'm really proud of that. And I'm proud of the teams that I got to be part of uh, in helping to do that. Uh, and, and a lot of what we accomplished uh, to, to in, in serving those communities. Um, I kind of retired from the C-suite, if you will, of healthcare, uh, organized healthcare, a little bit early, a little bit young, uh, a few years ago, um, and I and that was after again just looking back thirty-five years, so a long, a long run and an amazing run, but started so early that you know I still was reasonably young and, and therefore energetic and still wanted to contribute, and I had the chance to be a, a public appointee uh, to Wayne County government uh Wayne County is where uh, Detroit is part of it's about 2 million people very urban very challenged socioeconomically probably one of the largest and one of the poorest counties frankly in the country so a lot of challenges and I was you know offered the chance to be the director the head of uh, health and human services for the county and it was a chance to kind of be in public service give back all the clichés um but also learn a lot more about health in a community, wellness in a community and the social service aspects as well, because I was my team was responsible for that. So I did that for a few years. um, And like you said, kind of good news, bad news, guilt, joy, literally like a month before the pandemic hit is when I left. Um, So I feel a a little bit of guilt for not being still with the county and with public health. Uh, as the pandemic uh, occurred. Uh, But the flip side is for my own kind of mental health and uh, in security, I probably, you know, in a way not being there meant I was a lot more uh, stable and and less at risk from a lot of different uh, pressures, no doubt. I was on the advisory board of a friend of mine's healthcare tech company, and he was kind of re-energizing it. And he talked me into joining as a, you know, a full-time partner and a full-time co-executive uh, chief strategy officer of what was then called, uh, uh, from a public viewpoint, patient education genius. And we kind of went about rebuilding it. Obviously, with the pandemic hitting, we had to pivot a little bit to create kind of these tech tools um, to service the pandemic, since at that point, our core customer base were primarily physician and provider practice offices. And if you'll remember back to the beginning of 2020, most of those got shut down for a period of time around the country uh, during the uh, beginning of the pandemic. So we had to pivot. Uh, patient Education Genius now is known as people.health, thanks to some fine work from John U you and your team <laughs> in Golden Spiral helping us kind of rethink some strategy in the future and the direction and with it, creating a new brand and a new persona around that.
1: Yeah. So, so Dave, in that, in the context of what you saw happen, just, you know, leading up to the pandemic, but then certainly in the context of the pandemic, um, Because you are certainly involved with still in the context of people.health, because much of what you're doing with people.health has a very direct uh, tie with with providers and helping them address the needs more address the public's needs more effectively in the context of what was transpiring in public health and around public health around the pandemic. Talk about some of the the core changes that you were witness to. Uh, you know, as as providers uh, confronted the needs, confronted the the volume of challenge that that uh, that was presented in the in the context of the pandemic. Talk about what some of the core changes that you saw firsthand in that from your seat there. Um, well, you know, remember we we moved into a role,
0: or my my I moved into a role as opposed to being kind of a leader and operator of either healthcare, comprehensive healthcare services, or the government, the county role. Obviously, there we were there to support those that were providing that care and organizing that. So for me, it was a very different perspective than I've ever than I ever had personally or professionally, um, and you know. So I, I did everything I could to help. Again, back to that kind of guilt, guilt reward uh, dimension, not being in at the thick of it. Um, you know, and, and if you think about it, I'm sure it's an overused term, but those services were pressure tested. And government public health, particularly, you know, whether it be county, city, even state or federal, um, had been under, my, my personal viewpoint, had been underinvested for decades um, in, in so, they had not yep. had the chance to have, you know, contemporary processes, had challenges in the sense of recruitment, retention, and succession planning, and even professional development of a lot of the leaders and resources within public health. And probably most of all, obvious, had not had any type of real ability to reinvest in automation and technology. Had some basic, rudimentary things. Every now and then, there's an exception to that, but had not. And I'm sure the journey would have eventually gotten there for public health, um, but COVID hits and the pressure test happens, and it just was so clear how challenged those systems were to keep up and support, be efficient, be effective, you know, provide care and information and and services in at the scale and the speed that was needed because that was not ever other than isolated incidents here or there, had not been needed at that type of mass scale before, uh, at least in America recently. So, you know, our role and what I observed was, you know, anything we could do to help them help public health and and other providers involved in COVID, especially that first year, automate, improve their processes, expand and extend the support staff and the professional staff in any way, kind of, you know, from a, a, sometimes it's it's referred yep. to as lean management thinking, take the waste out of the process so that they could work to the top of their profession, the top of their license, um, was very much appreciated. So, you know, we ended up very early on, literally, you know, Detroit, Seattle, and New York, if you'll recall, were the hotbeds for COVID in the beginning. So here we were in Detroit, obviously, just our luck. And we, therefore, quickly supported Um, the development of some testing sites that were happening. You know, if you remember back to the national news broadcasts, those first few weeks or month, you see cars lined up for a mile trying to get into a testing site uh, and so on. We actually supported one of those right off the bat um, that had just opened. They were manually working through the process. They had four lanes going uh, in Detroit. This was with Wayne State University's provider group. And they had four kind of testing lanes going, and and they were basically doing somewhere around ten to fifteen cars people per hour, and because it was manual, and we quickly scrambled and within about a day, it was a Saturday actually to help automate some of their processes, rudimentary at that point because it was the first time it had happened. Uh, and literally, when they turned us on, the next hour they were doing fifty cars an hour because. While people were waiting in their cars in line through a text to sign that said text COVID to this, num- this number popped up a registration form. They could register while in the car anyway and safely, by the way, since they were by themselves. By the time they got up actually to the testing site, the swabber, so to speak, they were already in the IT system. They were already in the database and they didn't have to re-enter all that information. So they kind of could be swabbed and departed. So it just improved throughput. And I think the light bulb went off both to the provider group, Wayne State, but also to us, that wow, this was not really a complicated model, but boy, does it add value when it is such a ancient set of processes that were being put in place. And ancient, not in a judgmental way, but just the best that they had at the time, right? Totally manual, I mean, literally clipboards were being used, now in hindsight, the infectiousness of handing a clipboard back and forth. We learned a lot at the beginning of COVID, if, you, if you'll if recall, right? Um, and just avoiding that infectiousness, let alone the work process efficiencies. So we just built around that from COVID support to then helping health departments, not just in testing, but in re- result reporting, and then education information, and then even a lot of the um, other work that health departments were doing with COVID. And and we kind of became a great support, primarily in our area, although we ended up helping the uh, New York Health Department in some ways, but mostly in the Michigan, Midwest, Metro Detroit area, because that's where we're based, that's where we had some relationships as everybody was kind of scrambling.
1: So Dave, jumping back into your time when you were uh, the director of the Health and, and veteran Services for Wayne County, I'm curious as you as you are in that role and are endeavoring to lead that that framework. When when you're presented <laughs> with opportunities to innovate, when you have things come across your desk that are uh, opportunities to to leverage technology to improve something, talk about. Your decision grid, talk a little bit about what it is because, you know, the folks that are, you know, our audience here is, are people who are trying to talk to people like you in positions like the ones you've had to help them, you know, embrace a new solution, a new way of doing things. So take us into your, your decision stream a little bit and, and what are some of the factors and things that you're looking at weighing? What are some of the competing pressures? What would you want somebody who is trying to get your attention uh, to to know that would help you make a better informed decision or that would get your interest?
0: Yeah, you know, and I'd separate it out slightly. I think there are a lot of common issues or needs and kind of dimensions, filters that would apply no matter where I was previously in my career. But then I would separate out. When I was in the government sector, that health and human service job for the county. But
1: yeah, let let's start okay. there, and then we can go back and maybe talk about when you were, uh, you know, in at, at at Trinity Health or one of the other positions. Right.
0: Yeah, because government is different, right? I mean, and the culture is different, and the decision processes are different, and so on. And you know, the other thing to factor in COVID. By being a uh, national emergency, a lot of the traditional government procurement purchasing processes changed, right? Yep. But those aren't there anymore. It's no longer the pandemic emergency, so you go back to those. So I would make sure you know that anybody trying to work and support government-related entities understand you know government procurement culture. It varies, of course, a little bit by. Municipal, meaning city or county or state or federal, you know, and each one of the municipals or county could be slightly different and states could be slightly different. But you'd want to understand that and that because that's the, op- that's the philosophy and the model that the um, providers, the, the potential clients are operating under. But, you know, obviously, and it applies to everybody, you, you know, you got to have a level of ability to demonstrate that whatever your potentially... Um, pitching, producing, suggesting adds true value, right? Um, So what would it do? How would it be better than what they're doing now? And how, and that's, you know, that's, so that's the way our teams would always analyze it. And then how does it fit again into the financials, the budget? And again, government particularly um, acutely focuses on budget. If they're, if it's not budgeted, If it is, but, you know, it's a whole different set of processes than when things, when they do have some level of resources, a lot of the way government works is trickle down grant making. So you may be dealing with a local uh, public health department, county and or city health department, but it's probably got its funding from the state and the state obviously gets its funding from the feds. So a lot of the time those rules and those priorities and even the focus of what they're trying to accomplish cascade down from those grants, right? Yep. So you've got to understand that not only would this county be interested in this, but they, they may have parameters that come about by where they're getting their funding for it from,
1: right? Parameters or, in some cases, opportunities, right? Because the what they had funding from could open doors that another... Uh, another organization, another state might not have just because they were a, they were given money that was designated for certain types of initiatives.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and I don't mean this necessarily in a in a negative or critical way, but, you know, from a government leader viewpoint, if you don't want to leave money on the table, if you're given resources from the state, from the feds, whatever that wherever that grant may be coming from. You don't wanna not bring that to your community if you have an opportunity. You know, you don't wanna waste money, You know, you, so you wouldn't wanna spend it if it's totally irrelevant, but it's not likely gonna be irrelevant, right? So if you're being given an opportunity to bring down resources from a different, from, a, you know, again, from either state or federal levels, you're gonna to wanna to try to find out how to do that. But again, you have to also then meet the parameters of that. So that's a part of it. You know, the other part for government, and, and again, maybe this one I do meet a little more critically, But again, from the the very brief time I was there, wonderful people, great, hardworking people, God help them. They're they're there doing public service. Most of my career, you know, I didn't do that. So I I really respect people who are in government roles and trying to do that. But there is an aspect, a little bit higher aspect compared to private sector that I noticed of risk aversion, right? Because you're in a government role. You know, you have a a lot different kind of public persona, you know, a formal public or non formal public persona that goes along with it. And you're quickly criticized anytime you make a mistake or make a bad decision or what's perceived as that. So you are a little bit more risk averse because of that, right? So it means, I think in some ways, it's a challenge sometimes to be creative. It's a challenge sometimes to be more innovative. So I think organizations that are trying to work with government Entities and therefore government leaders have to recognize that is a part of the filter they're going to have, where I think a lot of times we, we, we present things to potential clients and customers as it'll be great, you'll be the first to do this it'll be wonderful, it'll be innovative, it'll be creative, that's great. (laughs) Not necessarily. (laughs) There's still going to be that thing in the back of the head, and especially in government, which is, yeah, but if it does, if it blows up on me, how much of the blame will I or my team take? Whereas if we go the safe route, even though it may not accomplish as much, I have less career, personal, professional, and team risk that's just the reality of government uh, of a government culture and i don't mean that necessarily hyper critical again but it is what they deal with because they're no. public servants so they are held to a higher standard but with it has that consequence
1: does that make sense absolutely i'd think i would say you know anytime you're selling into provider or provider related organizations the risk associated with the deployment of any new solution is there what I'm hearing is, in the public, universe, in 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 the context of public service, it's a step greater because, first of all, the what it takes to implement change in those organizations is pretty substantial, and so there's going to be a big move around it. But then there's a lot more eyes on it, and so how how that is worked and perceived is is really important, which tells me that one of the opportunities from a marketing perspective it, and this is certainly easier said than done but to do a lot of work around the de-risking story like how are you going to demonstrate the the pretty ironclad or sure to be successful nature of your solution so that they that it might help to build and instill confidence at a level um, that would allow a leader in one of those positions to take that risk to jump in and say, "Okay, these guys have obviously done their homework. There's several look-alike org- you know communities here or er- instances where they've deployed successfully. I can call my friend over there and ask them how it went, and you know different elements like that that are going to be important. If is that is that." On target. Yeah, yeah. Well, very, very much. I mean, think about it. You know, it's almost like back to
0: undergrad or wherever, wherever we learned. Uh, I'm going to hold up a triangle there. Right. Remember Maslow's hierarchy? I, don't, I forgot which class we learned about it in, you know, and that's like, that, <laughs> right. Something. I mean, I think tech companies particularly, but but I think a lot of companies that are trying to help serve customers and clients we were so quick to focus on innovation, creativity, and man, this will set you light years ahead. I'd almost refer to that as the self-actualization. Remember the top part of the Maslow's hierarchy that we're all looking for, right? The bottom part of Maslow's hierarchy was safety security needs, right? You know, housing, food, whatever, and then you move up a little bit and, you know, all the way up to that self-actualization as the pinnacle. But think about it from a purchasing government viewpoint, right? And I'd almost say you almost are better off focusing on that safety security dimension first, not say, hey, you're going to be the first on your block to have the following and it's going to be great and it's going to add so much value and they're going to throw a parade for you down Main Street and all this type of thing. Great. I'd almost, wonderful if I get there, but I'm not, but but I don't want to roll the dice. <laughs> That's not where you were starting. That's not where the conversation Remember, starts. Taxpayer money, community confidence, people have to, my leaders, my bosses have to be reelected, literally reelected, right? So I think risk aversion is really the first filter. So I'd be focusing on, here's why others are already using this. And as many of those others that have brands that are, admired, you know, the better. Notice how early on, earlier on, as an example, as I said, the New York City Health Department, right? In in one of our customers that we have, I mean, that's a brand that, hey, well, if if New York City went through a process and used as this, it's probably safe for me here in, you know, rural county, Wisconsin, or, you know, pick your favorite spot, right? Or at least I won't get blamed or my team or my boss won't get blamed if it doesn't work because I could have, it wasn't yeah. a, a far-fetched decision I made. So I'd almost focus a lot more than you might usually do on that safety, security, trustworthiness, then emphasize the innovation and the creativity and the advancement it can bring, almost reversing the traditional order where I think people normally think about it. Does that...
1: Yeah, you are you are knocking on the door to one of my uh, you know, what I what I consider to be one of my hot buttons because what I'm very aware of after working with a lot of technology organizations is what I call the tech bias. And what the the anatomy of the tech bias is is if you're if you're in a technology company, you inherently love change. I mean, change is a part of your DNA. You you embrace it, you look for it, you are instilling it, you are advocating for it and what you are doing is bringing something forward that is going to is transformational and you love that about what you're doing you love the promise of it you love the value that it has the opportunity to bring and what you inherently develop in that seat is a bias and comfort with that type of transformation and it and it really does deaden your senses toward and and what I've seen is it, it it creates kind of a disrespect or certainly a lack of empathy for the people in the in the places that are really stuck in a whole very complicated system that is inherently resistant to change in any shape or form. Layer onto that the the factors that you're you're talking about the the level of accountability the level of transparency that exists in the in the public health spectrum i mean that is um that adds another layer on top of it and so what i'm hearing and i think this is a great point i think you're you're inverting the triangle is a really um is a really great way to look at it so let's let's really encourage and honestly i think this is Largely true, you know. You, I think it's acutely true in the public health arena. I think it's also pretty true in 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 you know because I'm getting ready to ask you about your days at uh, as the CEO for for Providence and some of those other organizations because I think it's also true there. Yeah. I mean, it, it you you can't you can't take many wild crazy flyers when you've got a, a community that you are are caring for that is relying on you to provide a consistent high quality service. I mean, you, you have to make sure that you've got stuff buttoned up and so risk and, and cost and everything is is, all those elements are critically important. I would also, you know, I'm just going to take a minute here to underscore something you said earlier, because we hear it from everybody we've talked to on this podcast to this point. The value equation is essential and, and making sure you have a clear line to value that takes in as many, well, that, that I, I would say it, it, that line to value is different for nearly every provider organization you're selling into, right? I mean, the, the, it's nuanced, it has different factors, you have to be aware of those and, and give instances and and examples that are tailored to a number of different scenarios where you might be deployed because if you've talked to one health system you've talked to one health system Um, so I think that that's another critical thing to to keep in mind because it's very common for for technology companies to want to lead with the cool new innovative technology and what it makes possible and all the gizzy widgets and, and, uh, and nuances of a, of a platform that is, you know, whatever, whatever technology is bringing and the value equation ends up on page three (laughs) when, from a decision perspective, it needs to be on page one before you'll even begin to consider it. And how it gets it done is not as important as what it, you know, of the value it ends up right. delivering. Is that a fair casting oh, of very, that?
0: Very much. And again, I think where a lot of how I described government public health and ser- health and human services and, and some of the challenges there. I, I'd only put it down a slight notch below and only a slight notch provider, non uh, private sector, most in my experience, mostly, um, you know, nonprofit, but provider side. Uh, uh, private sector uh, healthcare, right? For all the same reasons, exactly what you're saying. And you know, don't, the other thing I think that the challenge right now is you cannot underestimate the fatigue within healthcare, the healthcare communities right now of automation and new software and new programs. So you're almost going up against not a neutral review, but a negative review up front, a critical review up front, because the challenges of EA, uh, electronic health records, which are obviously comprehensive changes, as along with a million other systems, whether they be human resource systems or finance systems or check-in processes or new way to order supplies or you know anything, healthcare overall had been so non-automated and then, you know, over the last 20 years has tried to go from, you know, for zero generation to third generation all at once, all systems at the same time. You can imagine the burnout and fatigue that that has created, uh, particularly on the caregiver side, but also then the support processes and the support people as well. So you may... have what you think is the world's greatest innovation that will save so many dollars and so much process steps, right? But it doesn't mean the burden of taking it on is going to be worth it to people. You know, the lines aren't going to cross quick enough for value versus effort. And that's what you've got to convince them of that. How do you convince them of that?
1: That that is, you know, we're hearing that a lot. I mean, the the point solution fatigue, the the fact that that for many of the people that you're introducing something to, their experience of technology is that it has complicated their world, not that it's simplified it. And the awareness of that, even though, even though, <laughs> you have the perspective that you're what you what you're bringing is an exception right. to that. You have but to our, overcome our, our, the reality. Our, our
0: baby is never ugly. Our baby's beautiful. Whatever yeah. we've created, it's beautiful, yeah.
1: right? Yeah, and and it very well may be, but when you put beautiful on top of six other beautiful things that you have, that all of which speak a different language in some yeah. sense, um, it, it becomes confusing. It becomes hard. It becomes, and, and especially when you're dealing with clinicians who are not necessarily first technologists who, who, whose days and times are extremely pressurized and, 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 and need simplicity. It has to be genuinely labor saving and extraordinarily intuitive for it to be embraced. And I've, I've heard that a number of times we have, we have several clients in the context of what we do, who, who have really eloquent solutions. And some of what we heard in some of the interviews that we've done with users is that they were coming to the table in evaluation of the solution highly skeptical. And then when they realized that this actually was gonna help them, it was it was a surprise. You know, they were they were surprised because every other deployment they've experienced has been, in some layer, adding a layer of complexity that, the, that was not welcome. And so that's a, that's a critical thing. It's an it's a essential component to value overcoming the technology bias and understanding that, yes, you're, you're seen as a potential complicator, not as a, not as a solution, is important. And, and being willing to do the work of overcoming that and demonstrating it you can't assume, you can't assume because you have this wonderful AI enabled Gizzy widget that is going to, that that represents a lot of really smart labor saving activities that it's going to be seen that way. It's going to be seen as a complicator. It's going to be seen as a threat. It's going to be seen as another thing that needs to be in some way trained and overcome. And you can't underestimate the the yeah, and there. there's
0: two parts to that, right? There's the eventual once it's implemented part of will this will this add value? Is it simple to use? Does it you know take? Does it create less clicks, not more clicks for the user for the worker, right? But then there's the burden of implementation, right? And both of those are going to be looked at. And in right now, at least in this point in time, you know the challenge of healthcare workforce of vacant positions and caregiver fatigue and burnout and, and the mass resignation of nurses and doctors and all those types of things. You know, it's going to be a challenge for an organization, even if they drink the Kool-Aid and they believe this will be well worth doing, they still have to cross whatever that threshold is, of. but is now the time to do it considering all of those factors. So there is a timing issue to some of this. I don't know how long that will last, uh, but the sensitivity right now to listening to caregivers and caregiver you know management, uh, the chief nurse, the chief doctor, you know the chief pharmacist, whomever it might be within the organization, and their influence on the decision making of what new processes and technology we take on and when do we do it, is probably they have more influence now than they've ever had. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm not saying it'll go away, but you can understand why it's escalated lately right
1: yep absolutely let let's uh shift gears a little bit here and um, and talk about and, and it's only a little bit because we've been the, these conversations have certainly been overlapping as we've gone through it, but looking at you know what what I can tell you is that for nearly every one of the clients that we work with, and I know many of the people that are in our audience the the CEO or the president of a provider organization is at the top of their target list or one of their primary targets, or one of the the folks that they know they need to uh, uh, get to to have a conversation with or to involve in the decision making process. They're often there. And I also know that those roles are. Extremely complex, multivariant, lots of oversight over lots of things, uh, lots of uh, elements coming across the desk that need uh, attention or decisions or uh, some sort of time. Um, give us a little sense of the, the day in the life, um, you know, looking at a role at Providence or in the context of Ascension or, or Trinity, you know, some of the day in the life considerations and, uh, how, how is stuff brought to you? What are you, what are you, and, and we talked about the importance of the value equation in there, but I'm, I'm give us a sense of the, of your role in those seats and, uh, and what it takes to capture your attention. What types of things are you looking at? And as a leader of those organizations, um, what, what, what are, what are, things that you're championing or getting behind or or looking for from an innovation perspective
0: yeah and it's it's a little mixed because you know they're, they're really part of why I love those roles you know especially at the CEO level was there was there were very few typical days and typical periods right I mean every it was such the organizations were trying to do such diverse things to serve the community that it meant the leadership of the organization also had to have a lot of diversity in what it did and Kind of what you know, on a typical, not just a typical week, but a typical day. So I love that, but that it's also therefore a little bit of a challenge to kind of answer your question of what's typical. I would say that you know I'm, I'm sure you know. And again, if it, it fits to what you'd probably predict, I uh, you'd probably predict me saying you'd be surprised at how little singular authority the CEO actually has, right? Yeah, they're in charge of everything, I guess, you know, when you think of the top of the organizational chart. But I think most people who are get to that leadership level and those leadership roles do so by being very team oriented, by delegating and by really not rarely trying to push their individual direction or decision. Right. So, when it comes to choices and purchases and um, directions to go to that level, you know, I think having the CEO supportive is great, but they're rarely going to be the one who initiates the idea or brings forward. Now, them knowing what the mega trends are happening in healthcare, or even at, if they're part of a large health system like I was that had... Corporate leadership at national or regional levels, and i I ran or I was leading business units or markets within so knowing the CEO generally is the one who's the connector to the corporate office to hear what mega trends and big projects that the system is thinking about the corporation is thinking about and and that sensitivity. Um, is helpful there if the CEO is aware, but it's not likely the CEO is going to bring forward. You know, I think it's time that we um, change our human resources platform, or I think it's time that we add an attachment onto our electronic health record that helps us, you know, better code the billing codes or whatever it might be, right? You'd want the CEO to know Hey, there's new developments happening. There's great value in innovation and improvements here, right? So when it gets to them, they know, yeah, we. I know we need to do something with regards to this, and I, you know, but the initiation is probably going to come out of other areas. Sometimes it's going to come out of the IT area or the technology side, but even then, a lot of the time it's more out of the user side. So if it's a pharmacy program innovation, it's likely that the pharmacy leadership is bringing it forward with some conversation, hopefully with IT technology, right? And they're bringing forward together a project or a proposal or a initiative. The CEO or even other members of the C-suite, again, you're going to need to convince them because they have Limited resources and uh, overabundance of requests. So, there's processes in most organizations as to how do you prioritize that, right? But so they have, they'll be certainly involved and influential there, but they're probably not the ones bringing forward the, the need, the ask, and the justification. That's probably happening from the operator and or IT and maybe even finance if it's a big capital project. They're partly involved sometimes in the development of the proposal as well.
1: So if I'm, if I'm hearing you, and I think this is pretty consistent with my experience, if you're wanting to involve the CEO or if you're wanting to have the CEO initiate or bring some ideas forward, it better be... Um, you're wanting to bring things forward that are megatrends or macro movements that are have the opportunity to affect change at a you know in, in, a, in a big way that is going to require a well, well that is asking for a pretty substantial change in how we're approaching something um, that that has big implications for the health system. Is that Is that fair?
0: Yeah, uh, again, and I think that will potentially not be individual offerings or companies or products, you know, it may be, you know, and and I was always careful about it as a CEO, I wanted, you know, I certainly was approached by people, or I would go to a meeting or a conference or wherever, and I'd learn about something. And I always, at least in my own mind, kind of thought through. So if I come back and I say, hey, I saw something really cool, we should look into it. I wanted to be really careful. I only did that for the few things that I didn't want anybody in the organization to think I'm inappropriately trying to sponsor this. And I don't mean inappropriate like ethically. I mean inappropriate like, hey, Brooks wants us to do this because I wanted them to still to process it and have independent and objective thinking around the opportunity or the need uh, and so on, right? So I had to be careful about that. But every now and then I would bring it forward. But I usually would try to bring forward, you know, I think the future's heading toward much more automation at the bedside in the sense of patient monitoring and caregiver monitoring and support. So I wouldn't say, hey, there's this company out there doing this really neat things with regards to cameras and speakers in a room that help the caregiver do their work and even document their work. And the company's name is, you know, Acme Tele- Telehealth, and they're wonderful, and they've already done it at two other places, and they'd love us to be a beta site, et cetera, et cetera. I'd, I would probably almost never do that, right? I might stoke the fire and say, hey, what have we done about understanding this or evaluating this trend or this new type of uh, deployment into our work processes? And should we be looking at that? And then if so, who are the players out there? Who are the best and brightest and so on? What have others done? We can't be the first one struggling with it. That's usually the type of vernacular you hear out of the ceo or the cmo or the chief nurse chief medical officer or the chief nurse officer or somebody like that right it's not i found this flyer i stopped by the booth at this you know conference i this i that right and you should look into this that it could happen i think it's going to
1: be pretty rare in today's kind of leadership philosophy does that make sense Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, that that makes great sense. And so really it is, it, it has a lot to do with the approach, like how you are, how you're bringing those ideas forward, how you're, uh, how you're making that accessible from a thought leading perspective has a lot to, lot to do with it.
0: Well, it's almost, you know, you're, you're the, uh, the guru of marketing, right? And I always remember my marketing 101 class. I think that's the only one I took in, in college. Um, you know, you segment. one of the first things you do is after the P's, remember the four or five P's or whatever that was, price, promotion, you segment right. your market. So you'd segment, you know, you got a healthcare organization. I mean, think about it. I mean, I was leading healthcare divisions of healthcare organizations, markets that had 12, 13,000 employees. I mean, it's an ecosystem in itself and has a tremendous amount of complexity that goes along with it, you got to segment that. So the message, if you're trying to bring forward uh, a a solution, a product, a tool, um, some assistance um, to the health system, you got to segment what the message and what you'd communicate to the C-suite, which might be different than what you'd be communicating to the finance leadership, which is different than what you'd communicate potentially to the technology, the IT department. And then obviously very different than what you'd be communicating to the operator, you know, the pharmacy department or the nursing department or the, you know, whatever, the registration department, wherever most of the deployment would occur, the user side, right? And you'd you'd have you'd want to have different messages, different even ways of communicating to them, and so on. And I, I think if you try to do a one-shot To everybody, let's start at the top because if we get the CEO interested, everything, life is good from then on, et cetera, is just too simplistic and generally unrealistic,
1: I, I think. So I would completely agree. And we definitely, you know, one of the things we do, we have a buyer matrix process that we work through that helps distill some of that and understand how to have those different conversations and how to position things differently. And it's really critical that you do that work because it's not just about your technology. It's, it's not, you know, you can't just tell a monolithic story and hope to connect the dots across the board. It's really important to understand, uh, understand that segmentation and whose problems are where, and what's going to get their attention? Right. Um, it's it's really critical. Uh, I know we have a we're we're coming up on our time here, and I wanted to just get your opinion on um, and one other thing. As you are looking at the horizon right now and technology on the meta scale, on the big on the big stage. What are some of the core thing, the, pro, the, the problems you are seeing very pronounced in the market that technology really has a good play at solving? And you know, what's your, what's your point of view on that? What, is, what needs to happen right now to, uh, to really be helpful in the, uh, in the provider space? What are some of the things that need to come across and happen that technology has a unique opportunity to fulfill?
0: Well, I think it, it relates back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier that I think you really need to understand your potential customer. And when you think of it as provider healthcare as the customer, you know, what, what, what are they going through right now? And, and not just short term, but medium to long term as well. Uh, and one of the huge challenges has been there, but is acute right now and is not expected to go away has to do with workforce. So I think sure. if you can bring forward things that simplify the, you used the term earlier and I like it. Simplify the work, simplify the systems, meaning, you know, at the very least integrate them, if not, re, if not consolidate to the, the systems uh, that people have to, to work in. Uh, if, if you can help do anything that lets particularly caregivers, but all staff, have more, you know, what's referred to as pride and joy in their craft, right? Meaning they don't burn out and they don't spend more time looking at a screen than looking at a patient, right? And, because that's not, the, that's not why they got into healthcare, right? They got into healthcare to help people individually or collectively and to have professional challenge and hopefully professional opportunities back to Maslow, right? Pay and whatever else goes along with that. So anything you can do to enable that, rekindle that is going to be real value added right now, more than ever. It's always probably been there, but more than ever, as you look at um, the nursing shortage that's happening or the pharmacist shortage that's happening or the rehab professional and obviously anything having to do with physicians as well. Um, from a clinical caregiver perspective, the professional side of healthcare right now it's in crisis and it's going to get worse before it gets better for the next, you know, 3 to 5 years based on the aging of people, based on retire early retirements and burnout and all that. So I think that's a huge opportunity for technology in the right way as we've talked about this last hour. Yep. In the right way.
1: Yeah. How how are you enabling a clinician to take their hands off of a keyboard? and f- focus their efforts and energies face-to-face in person with patients practicing at the top of their license. Yep. Uh, I think that well, that is, well
0: summarized, right? They shouldn't be touching is, a keyboard, they should be touching, appropriately touching the patient.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very important qualifier. <laughs> right, that's right.
0: But that's right. I think that's a, if that's the true north right now for a lot of these companies that you're helping to support so well, John, with your company, right, is how are we helping them do their craft better and back to the core of what that craft is about.
1: Yeah. David Brooks, thank you for your time here today. Great conversation. And uh, I, I reserve the right to, to uh, ping you again here because there's a lot more I think we could mine and bring some meaningful, uh, meaningful reflection toward because you've, your experience has just been, um, you, you have a lot of great experience that I think a lot of our listeners are going to take, take value in. So thanks for your time it. here today. And uh, I wish you the best as you guys continue to, to make differences in that public health sphere with people.health. There's a lot of need there. And uh, glad that you're, you're giving the energies in that realm. Thank you. And thanks for the chance to do this.
0: I, I appreciate it. And, and for the value all of your clients bring to healthcare and public health and so on. I mean, there, there is a lot of value there. We just got to figure out how we connect it all as best as possible.
1: Absolutely. Thanks again, Dave. Okay. Thanks, John.